Well, Genesis 36 for our text tonight. Genesis 36, if you'd like to flip in your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, there are several extras back on the back table. Feel free to grab one. Genesis 36, verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibama, there's a name for you, the daughter of Ana, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Rule, and Oholibama bore Jeush and Jalam and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemath, and the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatum, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath and Zerah, Shema and Mizah. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. Now, these were the sons of Esau's wife, Oholabama, the daughter of Ana and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Jeush and Jalam and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are Chief Taman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. And these are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mitzah. These are the chiefs descended from Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. Now, are you getting all this, tracking this? I want to make sure that I'm not you know, leaving you behind here. Verse 18. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibama. Not to be mistaken with his other wife, the Oholy Knight. Chief Jeush, Chief Jalam, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholibama, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. Verse 20. Fascinating. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Ana and Dishon and Ezer and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir, in the land of Eden, or Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin and Manahath and Ebal and Shepho and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aiah and Ana. He is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Gibeon, or Zibion. Can't remember him. 
Verse 25. These are the children of Anah. Dishon and Oholibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon. Himdan and Eshban and Ithran and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer. Bilhan and Zeavan and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz and Aaron. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites. Chief Lotan, Chief Shovel, Chief Zibian, Chief Ana, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Verse 31. Now, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. Then Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, became king in his place. And then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. Then Hadad died, and Samla of Masrika became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, became king in his place. Then Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hanan and Hadar became king in his place, and the name of his city was Pau. And his wife's name was Mehetabal, and his daughter was Matred, daughter of Mezahab. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their localities by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jepheth, and Chief Oholabama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinon, Chief Kanaz, Chief Taman, uh, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Imam, or Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their inhabitations, sorry, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Now I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. How in the world are we going to spend any time studying this? Much less in, in one night. How are we going to draw any kind of meaning? It's a list of names. It's another one of those biblical genealogies. And what does this mean to us in present-day present America, 2004? Names like Imam and Bella and Oholabama. How can this possibly apply to us? Well, let me explain something to you that you've kind of heard me say, those of you who have been wandering through Genesis on this journey. My hope is not that we're just students of the Word. My hope, especially with those of you who are showing up midweek to really dig in and study the Bible, is that we would become biblical archaeologists. Now, I'm not talking about going over to Israel and actually getting down on our hands and knees and digging in the dirt. I'm talking about the way we approach the Bible, the way we approach Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, a familiar verse to you. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, Be diligent. To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, breaking this verse down just a bit, there are three different words that are important to understand and know. Paul starts out and he says, be diligent. That word diligent is actually spudazo. Spudazo means to study or work at or endeavor or labor at. 
those of you in high school, when you get back into school in the fall, you may want to just tell your friends, I can't get together tonight, I've got to go home and spudazzo. Just see what they say. But it has to do with laboring. It's serious, intense, sweat-producing labor. Be diligent, Paul said, to present yourself approved to God as a workman. The word workman is ergates. It means a blue-collar laborer, one who rolls up his sleeves and isn't afraid to get grease under his fingernails and dirt on his arms. A laborer, a workman, ergates. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now that word handling is interesting to me. It's orthotomeo. Orthotomeo. Literally it means making the straight cut. Making a straight cut in the word of truth. Putting it this way, it would read, The student of the Bible is to be a hard-working, blue-collar laborer who knows how to make the straight cut. In other words, someone who is a digger. Someone who rolls up their sleeve, puts on their cap, maybe turns it around backwards, gets out the shovel and digs into Scripture to find out what it means. To seek the treasures that are hidden there, buried within the passages. Biblical archaeologists. That's my hope for you. My hope is when you go home from here, you don't close your Bibles and go, that's enough for this week. My hope is you go home and go, man, oh, Obama, i got to find out more about that chick. What's she mean and what's the deal here? And why'd she get a name like that? I hope that you'll go to the Bible bookstore and go, i got to have a Strong's Concordance. As opposed to the recent book by Max Lucado, maybe get a concordance and study for yourself about what the Bible has to say. Biblical archaeologists. Well, you may say that's nice. But I have just read through chapter 36, and I don't even know where to begin digging. What does this mean? Well, we're going to talk about these things tonight, but first we need a little help from the master digger, the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Spirit, be our teacher tonight. We ask this every week. We keep coming back to you because we know the revelation of the things in your word comes from you. We understand that you take all the things... That Jesus said, and you remind us of those things. We know that you take the things of the Father and you speak them to us. And you teach us, and you enliven us, and you invigorate us. But Father, you, you enrich our minds and our hearts as our teacher. We recognize, Father, no man has the capacity or the capability to bring these things the way you need them to be brought. Especially not me. And I pray, Lord, tonight that your spirit would be here. And that you would teach us. And help us to know you and love you better. Walk us through this passage now, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 1. Back to the beginning. These are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Now, Jacob's brother Esau. We've talked about him a bit. We've seen him before. His name means Harry. And he's the consummate man of the flesh. He's the man of the flesh. He is a great picture in the Bible. Sadly, tragically, unfortunately, a picture of the flesh. And the way the flesh works in our world, in our lives. He's the man of the flesh. As I've said before, and I'm not sure if I've said it here, but pretty much whatever Esau, let me back up, whatever Esau, he wanted. That's kind of the man he is. Okay? But being a man of the flesh isn't only about what you set your desire to, it's also what you set your desire against. And Esau very clearly had his desire set to certain things, but against other things. He is a man of the flesh. He is a picture of the flesh. Galatians 5.17 tells us, The flesh sets its desire 
against the Spirit. The things of the flesh do not want the things of the Spirit. And gang, the struggles in our lives are because of this fact. The fact that our flesh does not want the Spirit in our lives. Though we may desire the Spirit, though we may desire spiritual things, the flesh, our entire lives will fight against it. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how many days you spend in Bible study. And granted, the amount of time you spend in prayer and in the Word of God will increase your spiritual appetite. But the flesh is always there. There's really only one, one way to take out the flesh, and that's to die. Or to be called up by Jesus. So before we even go any further, please understand that. As struggles come and go, the flesh will, begin, will continue to battle through our entire lives no matter how much we pursue the Spirit. So don't be discouraged. Because the flesh is always there, trying to chip away. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Well, Harry is a man's man, a man who's always game for a good hunt, a great steak, and a woman or two. He is a man of the earth. In fact, Esau is, I believe, the first redneck. (laughs) Think about it. If your friends and family nickname you Red, you might be a redneck. If you sell a birthright for red lentil stew, you might be a redneck. If you settle down in the region called Edom, red, you might be a redneck. And that's where Esau settles, in the mountainous region of Seir, Edom. But that region is outside of the promised land. Because the flesh is always outside of the promises of God. The flesh always settles away from God's promises. The flesh settles for things that are not what God wants you to have. The flesh just settles. And God wants so much more for us. Galatians 5.19 tells us that the deeds of the flesh are evident. And I believe we'll have a good look at those deeds in Esau's lineage tonight. So these are the, the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau, verse 2, took his wives from where? The daughters of Canaan. That's where he took his wives from. Not the daughters of Israel, the daughters of Isaac, literally, but from the daughters of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Elam the Hittite, and Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, and also Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaiah. Now God will later warn Israel against taking wives from among the Canaanites. Let me just read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1. Moses is speaking here. Now remember, Moses, we believe, we understand Moses to be the writer of the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch. And as he wrote those, there are things that he writes down. He inserts things in Genesis that will come up later for the Israelites. And as the Israelites are reading the scriptures all the way back to Genesis, they will see things like, as we'll see tonight, a man named Amalek. And it will shed light on the Amalekites who are such a problem for Israel in their day. So Moses is writing the book of Genesis, but in Deuteronomy, Moses writes, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Termites and the Flashlights, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, Then you shall utterly destroy them. Moses says, listen gang, God wants them wiped out. He doesn't want a Canaanite in the land. Not a Hivite, 
Not a termite. None of, he doesn't want any ites in the land. You are to demolish them completely. Israel doesn't. As you'll see when we get further into our studies. But he goes on and he says, Utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them. Show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why, Lord? Why this intense separation? Deuteronomy 7.4 Moses says, For they will turn your sons away from following me. Literally God saying, They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And God doesn't want that for his people. He doesn't want you turned away to serve other gods. And so Israel, he lays out the extreme command. Wipe them out, have nothing to do with them, so that when you enter the land to possess it, you will not turn away from me, but you will be connected to me, looking to me, holding on to me. So God says, Israel, don't marry those pagan gals. They'll turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And that's the threat. Have no relationship, God says, with that which will lure you away from the one relationship that can save your life eternally. And that's the relationship you have with me. Don't assume you're the exception to the rule. Don't think, oh, you know, for thousands of years, people have been drawn away from God by earthly, fleshy things, but not me. I can handle it. I'm the exception. I can make my way to church on Sunday. I can sit in Bible studies on Wednesday. I can even have my Bible open from time to time at home. And I can still engage in the works of the flesh. That's okay because I can handle it. And God would say, no, you can't. No, you can't. Don't chase after the things of the flesh thinking, oh, I'm walking away from God. I'm not really walking away from God. I'm just holding hands with the flesh. I'm just hanging out with the flesh. God's my God. But today I've got to go to work with the flesh. I've got to be engaged with the things of the world. So I'll do that here. And I've still got my relationship and God says it doesn't work. As we talked about last week, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because I promise you the time is coming when you will not handle it. None of us truly can. But Esau, the redneck man of the flesh, he goes after pagan wives. And he picks up three wives. You may want to note these three wives. We're going to look at them tonight. Ada, Oholabama, and Basimath. Now as you read through this, it can get confusing. As a matter of fact, if you go back in Genesis to chapter 26 and chapter 28, there are a couple other places where Esau's wives are listed and they seem to have different names. And that can be confusing as well. So we're going to work this out. It makes a lot of sense, and a closer look will reveal that the names have been changed, but not to protect the innocent. The marital order of Esau's wives is given in verse 4, which is important because we'll use it for our outline. Again, it's Ada first, she's his first wife, second wife, Basimath, and third wife, Oholabama. Now, wifey number one, Ada. Esau brings Ada home to mom and dad, Isaac and Rebecca, proud of his first wife. Mom, dad, I want you to remember to, to, to meet Ada, my first wife. Actually, I don't know if he called her his first wife at that point. He's probably thinking my only wife, but he moved on pretty quick. Do you remember what Rebecca said about the Canaanite women? Genesis 24:46. Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living 
because of the daughters of Heth. Canaanite daughters. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Even at that point, after having met Ada, and I believe Basemath at that time, Esau's first two wives, Rebecca's saying, take me. Just kill me now. I am sick of my life. These daughters-in-law of the daughters of Heth are terrorizing me. You may recall that Heth means terror. These daughters of terror are messing up my world. I can't stand this. And so she begs with her husband Isaac to send Jacob away to get a daughter from their own family. Well, Esau didn't just marry a Canaanite woman. He brought one home with an infamous and upsetting name as well. Her name is Ada. Ada means ornament. I don't know if that sounds familiar. You students of Genesis, think back. Ada, this name meaning ornament. There was another wife married to Ada's husband whose name was... Oh, what was it? Hang on. It starts with a Z. It's back in Genesis chapter 4 and it's... Zillah. That was close. Zillah. Ada and Zillah. Zillah means shabby. Do you remember shabby and ornament? Now this is not the same woman because this Ada was married to a man named Lamech. And Lamech is mentioned back prior to the flood as the first polygamist in the Bible. Lamech is also mentioned as a murderer saying, hey, hey, my ancestor Cain, well he murdered and he's good, he's protected, he got away with it, so me too. Ada's name, just by the name, would be infamous. Remember, these people were pretty close in time, a lot closer than we realize. And the stories would have been passed down and understood. And naming or bringing home a woman named Ada would be like today, parents, if your son brought home a, a girl and said, Hey, I'm, marry, I'm marrying a sweet girl. You're going to love her. Her name's Madonna. <laughs> you kind of have the same reaction. Oh, really? You're going to have to meet her. And have to get to know her. So what does Esau do here? He changes her name. He takes the name of Ada and changes it. Genesis 26.34 tells us when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite. We'll come back to Judith. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. But here it says that Ada is the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Well, it's the same woman. Ada becomes Basemath. He changes her name, changes ornament into Basemath. Why does he do this? Well, Basemath means Spice Girl, basically. So she was the first Spice Girl. That's what it means. It means spices, fragrant spices. So she's Spice Girl. And he changes Ada ornament into Spice Girl. But why did he do it? Well, a couple of possible reasons. Maybe to make her name less offensive to Mama Rebecca. Although I'm not really quite sure that's it. The second reason is more likely. Because this man of the flesh had already set his eyes on another girl named Basemath, who was his half-cousin, Ishmael's daughter, sister to Nebaioth, which brings us to his second wife. Now put that together. He marries Ada, brings her home. He's with her, but he's got his eye on another woman named Basemath. So he changes his wife's name to Basemath. He begins to pretend, possibly, in his own mind, that his wife is not his wife, it's this other woman. But pretending doesn't work for long. And ultimately, along comes the second wife. Let me share something with you on this. 
I had a friend several years ago and we were talking about male things and male sins and male struggles and challenges and, and we were talking about the whole issue of fantasizing especially if you're a married man and he was saying you know it's not a problem at all for a married man to fantasize about another woman just as long as he doesn't, as he doesn't act on that and he said, it actually helps me. It's kind of a, you know, it's something I can do. I'm a little tired of my wife. I just think about someone else and, and everything's good. Now, based on your reactions, I know that sounds a little sick. And it bothered me greatly. Because Jesus said for a man to even look at a woman with lust in his heart is adultery. But that's exactly what Esau's doing here, I believe. He's got Ada and he changes her name to Basimath because he already has Zion, this other Basimath. And he's beginning to play that game. And let me just encourage you husbands never to play that game. If you're going to fantasize about anything, fantasize about your wife. Let her be the picture in your mind. See her. Focus on her. Because the moment in a marriage, either partner, male or female, began, begins to look around at others in comparison with their wife or their husband. Danger. That's where it can begin to fall apart. But this is what Esau does. Changes Ada to Basemath. But then he, that's not enough. So he now takes Ishmael's daughter, his half-cousin, Basemath, as his second wife. But that doesn't go very well. And so ultimately he changes her name too. So now he has Ada who is Basemath. And, and he has Basemath who he changes to Mahala. Okay, Mahala, Genesis 28.9 tells us that Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahala, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's, Abraham's son, sister of Nebaioth. Mahala, kind of a nice Hawaiian sounding name. Well, if you're with me so far, wife number one, Ada, is Basimath. Wife number two, Basimath, is now Mahala, but the, the plot here sickens a little bit, literally. Mahala, you're going to love this. Mahalath literally means making one sick. So he has his first wife, who he changes Ada to base math, and now he takes his second wife, base math, and he changes her name to You Make Me Sick. <laughs> Honey, sweetheart, got a new name for you. You Make Me Sick. Why would he name her this? Because Esau, this man of the flesh, is already moving on to wife number three. Ada wasn't enough, had to pretend that she was Basimath, but when he got Basimath, she wasn't enough. She, she kind of started to make him sick, so now he needs someone else. That's what the flesh does. The flesh is constantly hungry for something else. So now Ada, Esau is saying, I've got to have a third wife, and this is some real insight into how the flesh works, even in little ways in all of our lives. The flesh is never satisfied. It's never quite enough. We get filled, and we take, and we take, and we take until we're sick of something, but then we regroup, and then we take some more. It's like the Roman baths, the original binge and purge parties. The Romans, and you may have heard this, used to have these week-long, sometimes month-long parties in which all they would do is just feast and feast and feast until they were bloated and sick, and then they would go throw it up, and then they come back to the table. Wiping their mouths off and feast some more. And feast and feast and feast until, oh, I just can't eat anymore. And then back over, get rid of it, purge, and back to the table for days and days on end. That's how debased Rome became. We're not far off. 
in the way we take in and need more and more and more stuff. The flesh is never satisfied. Gang, you can have the greatest marriage in the world. But if it is based in the fleshly things of good looks, great sex, wealth, health, and physical vitality, guess what? It'll get old. It'll break down. It will fail. That's what your marriage is based on. If it's based in the flesh, it's never going to be enough. This is what the flesh does. I'm going to see the sickening in my spouse because I'm tired and I want to move on. I'm going to focus on our marital problems and the defects in the relationship. She's lazy. He snores. She nags. He's rude. And the more I focus on that, the more free I am to begin looking other places to new and exciting things because she makes me sick. Mahalo. Let me just tell you, if you want to revitalize your marriage, if you want to see your children, maybe, in a whole new light, if they're bugging you, or if you have a relationship, any relationship in your life that you would like to see invigorated, brought back to life, or quickened, here's the key. Don't see your spouse as you wish they could be. See them as God made them to be. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word works is poiema. We are God's poems, or literally masterpieces. Every one of us. Husbands, when you look at your wives, you are looking at a masterpiece. Wives, when you look at your husbands, you are looking at a poetry of God. Now, maybe not when he's sitting on the couch belching, but most of the rest of the time. He's poetry. This is the way God made us. And if we can learn to look at each other that way, if I can look at my kids, even at their worst, and say... These are my three poems. And I see them in a whole new light. Any relationship, that will work with. But Esau looks at wife number two, calls, calls her, you make me sick, and he frees himself up now to move on to wife number three. And she's truly fascinating. Her name is Oholibama. Great name. Her name literally means tent of the high places. Now why would anybody name their daughter tent of the high places? Because she was a temple prostitute. Tent of the high places. In the high places, that's where the pagans would set up their places of worship. Their temples, their tents would be set up there. And the temple prostitute's job as a priestess was to lure people on up there for worship. She's going to have a little worship time. A whole Obama. Tent of the high places. This Esau is amazing. Hey Esau, where'd you meet your third wife? Um, online? <laughs> Didn't go up there. What are you talking about? Pagan worship. What? I don't understand. Gang, she was a temple prostitute, a priestess of paganism residing in the high places. Now, think about this. If Mama Rebecca and Papa Isaac were upset about Ada, renamed Basimath, or if they were more upset about Ishmael's daughter, Basimath, renamed Mahalath, how are they going to feel when Esau brings home a pagan priestess prostitute? Wife number three! I would just love to be a fly on the wall at that holiday dinner. Wouldn't you? Everybody's sitting around. I don't know. Weird. So what does Esau do? He now has a third wife whose name means basically temple prostitute and he's got to do something so he changes her name. He already changed the names of the first two. Her name now becomes Judith. Judith. Why change her name to Judith? This is interesting. Look up the name Judith in any Strong's Concordance, or any Concordance for that matter, and you will find that Judith means one thing. 
Jewish. Judith means Jewish. He named his wife Jewish. Now you may say, wait, 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 wait. But this is before the Jewish people were called Jewish. This was before, before Jacob had a son who he named Judah, who later was the namesake of Judaism. Why would he name his wife Jewish? Well, there's something else to note about the flesh. The flesh is devilishly led. It's diabolically led. The flesh is in league with that which is evil, Satan. And I think Satan is, is doing a work here, as he does. But that's your connection. The flesh is connected to Satan. Now, oh holy mama, Judith, was Esau's favorite wife. She's listed chronologically again in verses 4 and 5. He had three kids with her, which you can read. He only had one with each of the other two. And although he called her Judith, the name didn't stick. She continued to be called Oholibama because that name was, well, it had celebrity status to it in the region. Why was she his favorite? Three things to note. She was charming, number one. She had to be as a temple prostitute. Her job was to lure people, men. And so she was charming. Secondly, she was unusually powerful for a woman in that day. She was a chieftain. A chieftain. You may have saw it when we were reading by before. Verse 40 tells us. Verse 41 mentions Chief Oholibama. That's her. A woman chief. A, a woman overlord. Or warlord. And this is very unusual and shocking. A, a sheik, so to speak, in the land. This Oholibama. Which even among the pagans was very rare. But number three, she was also child of a celebrity. A well-known man. Verse 24 tells us. These are the sons of Zibion, Aiah and Ana, and he is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father, Zibion. This Ana is Oholibama's father, so she has a famous father. What's so famous about finding some hot springs? Big deal. Well, it may not be a big deal in our culture, but it was in their culture. Biri, by the way, or beer literally means hot springs or well, and Biri is his name. Ana's name is also Biri, which you can see in verse, let's see, 24 tells us that it's Ana, it's, oh, Genesis 26, 30, 34, Genesis 26, 34 tells us that Ana's name is Biri as well. So apparently after Ana found these hot springs, he changes his name to Biri, which means well or springs. But why would that make a guy a celebrity? Listen, as I said, what matters in one culture doesn't necessarily matter in another culture. Think for a moment about our cultural icons in America today versus, say, cultural icons in the Middle East. In America, Seattleites are chanting, Ishiro, Ishiro. And in Palestine, they're chanting, Arafat, Arafat. We pour millions into concerts by the likes of Britney Spears, while Middle Eastern Muslims pour millions into the likes of Al-Qaeda. And we all have our cultural icons. You know, we talk about Air Jordan, while Al-Qaeda is very busy being financed in Muslim countries. Now, you may be getting uncomfortable. You may feel like, Rick, you're walking that line of slamming the Muslims a little bit. Let me speak clearly about this. What we call rad radical Muslim militants, they aren't. I would put it to you that there is no such thing as a radical Muslim militant. 
I would say that what you're seeing is a truly faithful Muslim. There's nothing militant about somebody who is following to a T the writings of their scripture. The militant Muslims are following the Quran. They're doing exactly what the Quran teaches them to do. What about a radical Christian? What would happen if someone took Christianity to the fullest extreme, over the top, doing every single thing that God talks about and acting exactly like Jesus? You'd have love. You'd have peace. And patience and goodness and kindness and self-control and faithfulness and gentleness. You'd have the fruit of the Spirit all over the place. There is a very clear difference. Christianity taken to its literal ultimate extreme is agape love. Islam taken to its ultimate extreme is jihad. So while we have cultural icons, and it's amazing, isn't it? We're all focused on athletes and musicians and, and people, honestly, of little substance when it comes to actual world change. While there are those in the world who look religiously at the world and look at their leaders who are dangerous. And they are their icons. Well, anyway, back to Barry. This desert nomadic culture clearly thought it was cool to find springs in the desert. And it was. Important. So, Ohol Obama's father is a celebrity. He's the only one, by the way, in this entire chapter whose name is pulled out. And we're told something about him. Something special and significant. That he did this thing. And everybody would know that Barry, or Aina, did this thing. So, Ohol Obama is also somewhat of a celebrity herself. So Esau now has his wives, his three wives. He's got Spice Girl, You Make Me Sick, and Tent of the High Place. <laughs> and together, Esau and his wives begin to propagate. And the rest of chapter 36 is a stunning picture of how the flesh multiplies and proliferates in our lives. If you're taking notes, I'd like to encourage you to jot down eight things real quickly tonight. Eight things for the rest of this chapter. Number one, these are eight things regarding the flesh. And how the flesh works. Number one, the flesh is pious. The flesh is pious. It's religious to a degree. That may sound weird, but what religion tends to do, especially pretentious piousness, it, it tends to want to kind of change things on the superficial level. Not to dig down deep, but to, to make things look better. When you think about a religious person, they're the one who looks on the outside like everything's all together, even though you know on the inside they're a total wreck. Because we all are. But being pious, that's, that's something of the flesh. It, it changes names to make our sins sound more acceptable, even to make our sins sound religious. We talked a little bit about this last week. But here in this chapter, we have Ada, who is now called Basinath. That's a little less offensive. And Ohol Obama, oh no, temple prostitute. Well, let's call her Jewish. That's easier to handle. It doesn't change what she is. It's just changing the name. Changing the name of something does not change its meaning. Last week we talked about this. Let me add a few. You can call adultery an affair, but it's still adultery. You can call fornication a fling, but it's still fornication. You can say sodomy is just, it's just being gay. Isn't that a shame that word gay just kind of got wiped out? When I was a kid, literally, and it was that recently, when I was a kid, you could be gay and that was just being happy. It was alright. There were a lot of gay people who weren't, you know, gay. Not anymore. 
being gay, the sin is still the same. The flesh is pious. It's into appearances and superficiality and the surface of things. It's about how things look and sound rather than about what they truly are. And Romans 8.27, Paul tells us something very different about the spirit. While the flesh is into the superficial, the spirit searches the heart. The spirit wants to get in deep with you. God wants to know you and to be known by you. He wants relationship. He's into tearing away the superficial levels. To taking the flesh off and getting down to the nitty gritty of who we really are. 2 Corinthians 5.16 Paul says from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. That's a great rule of thumb for Christian living. Don't look at people according to the flesh. Don't focus on them according to the flesh. You look at them according to the spirit. Recognize them based on who they are spiritually, not in a fleshly way. Well, number two. First of all, the flesh is pious, but the flesh is secondly prolific. The flesh is prolific. It's stunning to notice as you read through this chapter how many different people groups stem from Esau. So... So Esau, like the flesh, expands and grows and breeds more flesh. I said Esau is a man's man, you know, the redneck, the man of the flesh. Look at his lineage. They all head that direction. They are all like their father before them. The flesh grows the flesh. And listen, there's something we need to understand about sin. And this is very important. And parents, your kids need to know this. We need to know this. There's good news and bad news. The good news about sin is that when we sin, sin can be forgiven. If you are in Christ, sin is forgiven. Psalm 103 verse 10 tells us He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. That's awesome. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's the good news. If you sin, God says, I'm going to wipe it clean. Trust me, give it to me. I will wipe it off the face of the map. You don't have to carry that anymore. But there's bad news with sin, even for Christians. And please understand this. Galatians 6.8 For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh also reap corruption. If you sow to the flesh, Christian or not, you will reap corruption. Oh, oh, there's forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And God will wipe the slate clean and He will look at you as a pure child through the blood of Jesus. However, if we choose to sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. My mom was just telling me um, just this last week that a close relative of mine has a lump under his toe. And there's a strong possibility that he may be looking at cancer in his mouth. Now this relative has been clean and sober for 13 years. But for 25 years prior to that he was strung out. Most of the 25 years of his life that he was on drugs and drinking he doesn't remember. But a miracle happened in his life and he found Jesus and his slate was wiped clean and for 13 years he has walked with the Lord. And it has literally changed. My mother's side of the family is a wonderful thing and a blessing. 
When I get emails from him and email him back, I mean, we, we still communicate. It's wonderful to talk with him. But the flesh, if we sow to it, will reap corruption. And so though he is forgiven and as saved as anybody I know, he's dealing with the reality now. 25 years of sowing to the flesh. And he's reaping a corruption. And that's what happens. And, and people who miss this, we say, I gave my life to God. I, I gave it all over to Him and now I'm walking with Him and living for Him. Why is this bad thing happening to me connected to what I was before? Because there's a physical truth that's also a spiritual reality. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. Thank God it is only for this life. But it happens and it is the truth of sin. My kids... I want you guys to understand that. I really do. Hannah, Corey, Hayden, I want you to know that. If you choose the flesh, it's going to come back to you. It will bite you. So choose the Spirit instead. Esau plants seeds among these women of the flesh and the crop does come up. There's no two ways about it. He gets illegitimate problems. Little Esau's running all around the hill country proliferating just like their father, just like in our lives. The flesh is prolific. Number three, the flesh appears prosperous. The flesh appears prosperous. Verse 6 tells us that Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went another way to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great. Esau was a wealthy man. This man of the flesh. This picture of sin. This man's man who could have, could have nothing good to say about God. Had nothing to do with God. Didn't want a connection with God. As we've said, he never once even mentions the Lord when Esau speaks in the Bible. But he's rich. He's wealthy. Esau has got it going on in the material world. And you may wonder why the fleshly guys get promoted. You may ask the question, why do the cheaters get ahead? And folks, they do, don't they? Well, let's call it what it is. They get ahead. You can cheat and come out better off in the world's eyes. You can do shady business deals and seem to become prosperous because of it. Oh, you're still reaping corruption. I mean, that's still, that's still coming. But why is it in this world that it, that it seems like the sinners get so much? That the people who cheat and, and steal and don't do right... They seem to get all the breaks. Flip in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. The psalmist just nails this. This is Asaph writing this psalm, not David this time. And Asaph is struggling with this question. He raises this issue. Why do bad people get good things? Why is it that people get wealthy who don't deserve it, at least spiritually they don't deserve it? Asaph talks about this. Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Their pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. 
The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. It's frustrating. Asaph goes on and says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. They sin and get good stuff. I try so hard to be spiritual and I get slammed. How is that fair? Asaph goes on, verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, (laughs) then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Let me ask you, would you rather have the wealth of the world or hold on to the hand of God? Verse 24, with your counsel you will guide me. And afterward, oh, praise God, afterward receive me to glory. And the world cannot track that. And the world cannot compare or compete with that. So if you struggle with that very issue, people getting ahead by sinning, hey, they only get ahead so far. The glory's coming. And God has a wonderful plan for you. Number four, the flesh is persuasive. The flesh is persuasive. As you're writing down that, one other thing on the flesh being prosperous, it's interesting to note that Jacob's sons were born outside of the promised land, but he brought them into the promised land. Esau's sons, however, were born in Canaan, in the promised land, but he took them out. He removed them from it. Flesh seems prosperous. Number four, the the flesh is persuasive. This is interesting to me. Verse 11, I I just kind of caught something here. More of a picture than anything else. Verse 11, the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gitam, and Kenaz. Eliphaz had a son named Teman. Eliphaz and Teman. Eliphaz the Temanite. Now if you've read the book of Job, you know that Job had three friends. One of them was a man named Eliphaz the Temanite. I don't know if there's a connection here genealogically. I don't know if this was actually the same guy or not. It probably wasn't. But it's interesting that Eliphaz the Temanite was one who attempted in Job chapter 4 and 15 and 22, those three chapters, he attempts to persuade Job that God is mad at him. The flesh may be persuasive, but my friends, the flesh is a lousy counselor. Why is it that we're so, we're so interested, so willing to go to Walden Books or Dr. Laura for insight and counseling when we've got the very Word of God? Why run to the flesh to understand the flesh when we can come to the Spirit to grow spiritually? 
The flesh is pious, it's prolific, it's prosperous, it's persuasive. When you need counsel, folks, don't seek the flesh. Seek the Father. In fact, I like to put it this way, and I always have this word picture in my mind. Go to the Father, He knows. Ask the Father, He knows. Those of you who have seen A Wonderful Life, there's a scene there, my favorite scene in the movie, where George Bailey is trying to figure out, as a kid, what to do. He's got some pills, they're the wrong pills, he's supposed to take them to some people, the druggist is upset, you may recall the scene, and he's standing there in the drugstore going, what am I going to do? I get away. And he looks up and there's a billboard on the wall. And that billboard is implanted in my mind. It's a picture of a dad, and it just says, Ask Dad, He Knows. And so George Bailey runs off to his father to get some advice. It's a great picture. Ask Dad, He Knows. Go to the Father. Man, you, you need some persuasive advice? Go to the Lord. Number five. Number five, the flesh is pernicious. I needed a good P word, and I like that one. Pernicious. It's tricky. Verse thir- uh, chapter 36, verse 15 15 tells us that the chiefs of the sons of Esau are Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, and the chief Teman, and Omar, and Zepho, and Kenaz, and Korah, and Gatam, and chief Amalek. Amalek, who becomes the father of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a very vicious people, but they were also cowardly. Because what they would do when the people of Israel for 40 years were traveling in the desert, the Amalekites attacked them from the rear. They'd wait until the whole company of Israel was going by. And and then when there was just the stragglers or the weak ones or the sick ones, then the Amalekites would attack and take out who they could and loot and steal and then they'd run back away. Cowardly fighters. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17. Moses says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked you among all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. And he did not fear God. The Amalekites were those who picked off Israel from behind. They laid into Israel where they were weak. They picked off the stragglers of the company of Israel as they sojourned in the desert. And let me just make a note, the most dangerous place to be on our spiritual sojourn is in the back. Now I'm not talking about the back seats tonight. You guys are okay back there. (laughs) But it's sitting in the back of the bus on the spiritual journey. You don't want to be straggling behind. Because that's where the enemy picks you off. That's where the Amalekites attack. And the flesh is tricky. It's pernicious. It goes after you when you're weak. And so I say, man, stay close to the tabernacle. Stay centered among the people of God. Get in there in the march and walk among protection, close to the things of God. Deuteronomy 25.19 says, Therefore it shall come about, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies, in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, but you must not forget. Interesting. Blot out the memory of Amalek, but remember him. Don't forget. Why? Because Amalek strikes from behind. Don't forget, the flesh strikes from behind. Satan wants to get you when you're weak. Number six. Number six, the flesh is powerful. The flesh is powerful. Interesting, verse eight says Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. And then down in verse 20 it says, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Who are the Horites? Again, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 11. says, Like the Anakim, they were also regarded as Rephaim, 
But the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. The people before Esau and his strength and his sons and his power and his flesh, before they came into Seir, the Horites lived there. Who were they? They were the Anakim or the Rephaim. Students of the Word may recognize that these are the giants of Scripture. These are listed early on in Genesis as big people. Giants and giantesses, people to be feared, but not for Esau and his boys. No, the men of the flesh had some power. And they went in and they wiped out the giants and took control of the land. And that's what the flesh does. It's powerful. It's strong. Esau, our man's man, conquered great things and overcame giants. And the flesh says, hey, I can overcome. I've got the power. I've got the strength. I can do it. But God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. He said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Why, Paul? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. For the flesh wants to be strong. But the Spirit says, Hey, relax in your weakness. Stop trying to be so tough and rely on the power of the Father. Well, the flesh is also, number seven, persistent. The flesh is persistent. Verse 31. Let's read this to you. Through 39. Listen to this. Over and over this phrase pops up. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. You have Bela who reigned in Edom and the name of his city was Dinhaba. Verse 33 says, Bela died and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, became king in his place. And then Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. And then Hadad, the son of Bedad, became king in his place. And then Samla of Masrika became king in his place. And then Shaul of Rehoboth became king in his place. And then Shaul died. And Baal Hanan became king in his place. And finally Hadar became king in his place. And the flesh just keeps rolling on. It's like the Energizer Bunny, it just doesn't quit. It's persistent. It goes on and on and on, which as we said earlier is why we have to battle the flesh till the last day of our lives. Because it's always there. And again, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Knowing that the flesh is there, knowing that it's attacking, and knowing that even as our, at our best, we're going to fall. We're going to struggle. We're going to sin. It is going to happen. But again, God says, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. So you rely on me. The flesh is persistent. By the way, that's why we keep coming together and feeding the spiritual among us. Because the more you feed the spiritual and starve the flesh, the more strength you have in your weakness. And the more the spirit will overcome the flesh in your life. Number eight, and finally, the flesh is proud. The flesh is proud. Verse 31 just kind of reeks of arrogance. Listen to it. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. There's a tone of pride here and arrogance. This was the region of the kings. The original region of the kings. These are where all the chiefs are. 
Now, I'll tell you this one thing. In putting Scripture together, a lot of these genealogies, it's thought, may have come from different people. But Esau himself may have written chapter 36. Oh, not as chapter 36. He didn't sit down with Jacob and say, hey, let's work out Scripture for God. No, there's genealogies that heads of households would keep and would be passed down. And it's likely that God got these genealogies into the hands of Moses when he finally sat down to write Scripture. And so as you hear this, it's as if Esau is saying, hey, this is the place of the kings. This is where the kings resided. And all the chiefs who came from, from my lineage, the chiefs, you know, and everybody's named a chief in here, even a whole Obama. Chief this and chief that. And we're way ahead of God's people, Esau seems to be saying. And unfortunately, God's people looked at these kings and said, well, all the other nations have kings. Can't we have one too? And they were doing so much better when the Lord was their king. But they had to get kings too. They wanted to be like the world. We want our own kings. We want to be big and proud and noticed. We want some sense of pride. But listen to what God says to Edom through the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock. And I've told you this before. The clefts of the rock. Petra was the rock-walled city. Still there today. Petra, that rock-walled city, was the capital of Edom. In that place. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And this brings me to the last thing that I want you to see tonight. And that is that the flesh, for all of these things, the flesh is pitiful. The flesh is pitiful. For all its piety and proclivity and prosperity and persuasion and perniciousness and power and persistence and pride, at the bottom line, the flesh is pitiful. Among all these chiefs and kings, all of Esau's grandchildren, all those linked to Edom, God levels this amazing indictment and says, you're going to be laid waste. You're going to be nothing. We've already seen so much of this fulfilled. Edom, you're going down, God says. And if you go and visit the region of Edom today, go check out the rock-walled city of Petra. It's a ghost town. Nobody lives there. It's a desert wasteland. Edom, Esau, for all that we read in this chapter, amounts to nothing. There's nothing left of him. By the way, Jacob's still here. Israel's still around. Israel, the people of God, still have a role to play, still have a place, still have a land that, that will be given back to them completely, not just the little sliver they own right now that they may lose more of any day. They will be given the whole of the promised land. Zechariah 14.1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Israel's going to get it and get it good. And Edom doesn't even exist anymore. I wanted to take time with this chapter tonight. I almost didn't. I thought we could just read through this like we did at the beginning and go right on into chapter 37 and say, you know, study that on your own. But there's such an important point not to be missed here. And that is this. The 
point of the whole chapter, and as Israel themselves read through this, they would realize that the flesh leads to one place and one place alone, the grave. The flesh leads to the grave. But if we place our hearts and our minds on the things of the Spirit, if we place our lives in the hands of the Spirit, if we look into, lean into, hunger after, and seek after the spiritual things of God in Christ Jesus, then we will walk right over the grave and on into glory. Could you flip over real quickly to Romans chapter 8? You've been so, so patient here, but I want to finish with this. Romans chapter 8. And we'll conclude tonight. Beginning in verse 1. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Listen, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Do I need to break that down more clearly for you? I mean, oftentimes, especially when, when a pastor sits down and, and tries to think through a, a message, a Bible study, a lesson, we think, okay, well, what are the things of the flesh? So I explain, well, it's the movies you see and it's the music you listen to. You know what the things of the flesh are. You know. So tonight I would encourage you to think about what in my life do I focus on that is of the flesh versus the spirit. The mind of the flesh, verse 6, is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Listen to these last two verses here. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are, not, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's the key. The key is not saying no to the flesh. The key is saying yes to the Spirit. Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign doesn't work. Saying no to drugs is not enough to stop someone from taking drugs. It's saying yes to that which is better. And in the same way, saying no to the flesh is not going to protect you from the flesh. You've got to say yes to the Holy Spirit of the living God. 
Father, we need your Spirit in our lives. And God, we, we seek after it and we, we pray for it now. Asking, Lord, that you will fill us up with your Spirit. And remind us on a daily basis of the spiritual things. And lure us and attract us and draw us, Father. And feed the spiritual hunger within us. And let us see those things which you see. Let us not look, Father, anymore or regard anyone in the flesh, but in the Spirit. To be Spirit-filled. God, it's almost funny to me that, that we have Spirit-filled churches and we have non-Spirit-filled churches. And that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Because, God, if we're children of yours, aren't we supposed to be Spirit-filled? All of us. So, Jesus, fill us up. As we say yes to your spirit, we ask you to conquer the flesh in our lives that we are too weak to conquer. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.